This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peace Street Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10 as we continue our series of studies in 1 Peter. We're looking this morning at chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. It's page 1015 in the Pew Bibles. While you're turning there, I want to invite you to return tonight to worship with us, pray with us in our prayer time tonight. Also, as we study God's Word from Jeremiah looking particularly at a couple of unfortunate events in Jeremiah's life and ministry uh, with an eye toward the theme of the price of faithfulness. Hope to see you then. This morning, we're looking here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. So give careful attention to the Word of God. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Open our eyes, Father to hear your word, to see your word, to learn those things here that you would have us to understand. Father, we know that by nature we are dull, we are slow. Uh, Father, we pray that your spirit would enliven our hearts and minds. We pray, Father, that you would not only show us yourself in the word of God, but show us ourselves, that we might see who we are in relationship to you, that we might see your grace so magnificently offered to us in Christ. And Father, we pray all of this for his sake and his glory. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. The actress Lily Tomlin is quoted as saying, I've always wanted to be somebody, but now I see I should have been more specific. Peter, in his letter, is telling us who have believed in Christ, that we are somebody. He's fairly specific. He tells us not just that we are somebody, but that we are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's not uh, able simply to leave it even that general, but is concerned to be as specific as possible about our identity. We are somebody, but who? Peter is very specific as he goes through and and lays it out here, who we are as those in Christ Jesus. Now, he has been describing that in some terms that we looked at last week, that we are living stones, that we are a priesthood, and so forth. But there are those, as he says, who stumble over this cornerstone that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is for them not a savior, but an obstacle, not a blessing, but an offense. And so... Peter talks about them, but then in verse 9, he begins 
But you, again, going back to talking to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so he becomes very specific about who we are and about our purpose, our function here in the world. Now, it's important to notice that Peter is not being original when he writes these words. Not at all. He's taking this right from the Old Testament. And we've seen that as we've been going along. The Old Testament quotations uh, in, the, in the passage we looked at last time, and it's a completely different subject, but one worth pondering how well, not just Paul, who you would expect as a formally trained uh, leader in Judaism before he became a Christian, how well he understands the Old Testament. But then here's Peter, yes, an apostle of the church, but a fisherman by vocation who is able so readily to quote from the Old Testament, which was their Bible to preach the gospel from the Old Testament. Uh, And so something to consider the facility that Peter has in drawing from the Old Testament and not just being able to quote the verses, but show how they apply to us now in Christ, living in a New Testament, in a New Covenant situation. And it's, it's, it's really just part and parcel of these passages to recognize that Peter is just drawing from the Old Testament and showing how they apply to us. Now, with that in mind, I want to read two passages. You can turn with me to Exodus 19, because I want to show you, although Peter quotes from several Old Testament sources here, I want you to see a couple of main passages he quotes from, and you'll see how, how closely Peter is just taking from the Old Testament and applying that to us today. So let's look first at Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. A familiar passage, uh, Exodus 19 and 20, where the Lord comes down at Mount Sinai and gives to the people the Ten Commandments. Well, in 19, verses 5 and 6, the Lord says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So you hear Peter's echo of those words in First Peter chapter 2. One other passage Peter's drawing prominently from is Isaiah 43. We'll turn over to Isaiah 43. You can keep your finger there. We'll kind of refer back to it, although I'm reading it now, so we've got it in our minds as we look at the rest of what Peter says. But just to notice how, how closely he draws from these passages, Isaiah 43, beginning in verse 20. Isaiah says, The wild beasts will honor me. We're speaking for the Lord, of course. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And so you can see that Peter's language is just drawn right from the Old Testament. And so as we look at these verses in 1 Peter 2, keep those Old Testament references in mind. Now, let's look at what Peter says here. First of all, is he, is he specific about who we are, the somebody that we are? He talks about the people that we are. Then he talks about the purpose that we have. And then third, he talks about the privilege that we share, the privileges that we share. So let's look first of all in verse 9, the people we are. And he describes us using four phrases. Uh, you're 
may well be familiar with them. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's possession, or a people belonging to God, some translations render it. Well, let's look at those four descriptions that help us see the people we are, the somebody that we are in Christ. Well, first he says we are a chosen race, and we've seen that in Isaiah 43, the passage that we looked at. We tend to hear chosen, especially if you're Presbyterian. The word chosen jumps out. Well, of course, yes. Then you read through the Old Testament repeatedly. The Lord emphasizes to Israel how he chose them to, to belong to him, to be his people. And salvation, as Jonah says, is of the Lord. It begins and it ends with the Lord. The Lord chooses those whom he will save and we need to recognize that Peter is taking that expression and applying it to us, the new Israel, the new covenant Israel, Jew and Gentile, who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, for more on that, uh, see earlier passages in First Peter uh, or Romans 9, which we read earlier. And so I don't want to emphasize that too much because we, we've already talked some about that, that God is the, the one who chooses. God is the initiator of salvation. What we don't tend to hear is a chosen race. Chosen race. That yes, we are chosen by God, but because of that choice and because of His grace, we become a different people. We become fundamentally changed, not only from who we were individually before we became Christians, but who we are now living in this world. We have become a new race. That's why, you know, Paul can emphasize that distinctions that formerly divide us, whether nationality or ethnicity or socioeconomic class, are broken down in Christ Jesus. We, in a sense, cease to be you know, black or white, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, Eastern or Westerner, Northerner, Southerner, whatever it might be, and we become a new race, Christians, a new people. That's caused trouble for, for Christians in the world, even in the first century, where they tended to be viewed with suspicion because of the positions and the doctrines that they held, uh, because of how they did things differently from those around them. And for early Christians in Rome, uh, in the Roman Empire, the obstacle was not so much that they wanted to worship Jesus, it was that they wanted to worship only Jesus. And, and wouldn't support the Roman pantheon and were seen as questionable citizens and their doctrines such as the Lord's Supper practices were misunderstood. But uh, as Christians, we have become a new race, which means that uh, we belong to each other, we identify with each other, but it also means that the world is going to view us differently and sometimes with hostility. Uh, but it's worth noting, not just that we're chosen, but that we are a new and distinct race. Christ's people, those who belong to the Lord, Christians here in the world. Not only are we a chosen race, and again, language drawn right from Isaiah, as we saw, but Peter goes on to describe us as a royal priesthood. Now, he's already mentioned that back in chapter 2, verse 5, that we are like living stones being built on Christ, the cornerstone, the living stone, to be a spiritual house, and he immediately changes the metaphor to be a holy priesthood, the priesthood that, that functions within the house of the church. Now, here again, 
Peter's drawing from the Old Testament language that we've seen, uh, that we are a royal priesthood from Exodus, the passage that we read earlier. How so? Well, we're royal in that we belong to the king, that we serve the king, uh, but we're a priesthood in the sense that we are go-betweens, between the Lord and the world. Remember how Israel, even in the Old Testament, was to be a light to the nations, a witness to the grace of God to the nations. Unfortunately, they became too much like the nations to be much of a witness, and we see that problem often among professing believers today who seem to be no different from the world we live in. But the point was they were to represent God to the nations and offer the grace of God to the nations. Now, of course, Christ is our great high priest. Ultimately, we and, and anyone else who wants to come to God comes through Christ Jesus, not through you. But it is true that you pray for them. It is true that you may reach out to them. It is true that in a way you are the go-between uh, between fallen people and the living God, uh, bringing them to Christ so that in Christ they can be made right with God. That is our our ministry. It's also worth noting that while we are a holy priesthood, every believer functions in that way, that that does not create a climate of, of uh, anti-clericalism. Well, you know, nobody should be a minister. We're all a kingdom of priests. Well, that, that flies in the face of Scripture. For one thing, even in the Old Testament, in, in Exodus 19, the Lord says of his people, you are a holy priesthood, and yet within that nation creates a, a class of priests, Aaron, and those who functioned as the priests in among a nation of priests. Then the same in the New Testament. You see those who are given gifts of teaching or preaching and called to function as teachers in the church, uh, not having a higher standing in terms of relationship with the Lord or in terms of a priestly witness to the world, but having that function of teaching uh, or leadership or whatever it might be in the church. So Peter's not obliterating those distinctions in the New Testament any more than they were just obliterated in the Old Testament. He's simply saying that as God's people, we represent the Lord to the world and we intercede on behalf of the world to our Lord. And royal, again, because we belong to and we serve the king, not just the king, but the king of kings. Who are we? Well, we're a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. He goes on to say we are a holy nation. You know, it really was there at Sinai that the Lord establishes Israel as a nation. He's brought them out from Egypt. He has, uh, has brought them to himself. They meet with the Lord, and now he gives them his law. He says, I'm the Lord. I brought you out of Egypt, and, and I'm constituting you as my people, as this nation here in the world, and now here is how you are to live. Here is how you are to function. Here is what your laws should be. Here is how you... Uh, interact with me through the sacrifices and, and, and so forth. So a holy nation, a new people, but a holy nation. As we've said before, the idea certainly is, is their behavior, but it's their behavior because of, of who they are. Turn back to Leviticus 20. In fact, I was just reading this this morning. I, it's always the benefit of doing your devotions early on Sunday morning and not skipping them frantically looking forward to the service, because I find that very often my devotions on Sunday morning often contribute something to the service and the sermon. Leviticus 20, 24. Just notice, again, the sense of holiness here, set apart. 
I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who have separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the people that you should be mine. That's the, the, the fundamental sense of holiness is being separated from, being set apart from. And we are a nation, just like we are a race, that is holy, that is set apart. And just like within Israel, the dietary laws of clean and unclean were designed to teach the people that distinction. Some things are set apart, distinguished from other things. Uh, So we as a people are set apart from the rest of the world. And within our lives, as the people of God, some things are set apart, uh, some things are... Uh, separated from other things. There are things for us that are unclean. Behaviors, thoughts, actions, words that are unclean and those that are clean. And so we are distinguished from the world and even within ourselves there are, we distinguish between what is holy, set apart for us, that's right and pure and good, and those things that are not, that are unclean, that are impure, that we are not to, to touch or to be involved in. And so... A holy nation. And then the last thing he mentions here is talking about who we are, is a people for God's own possession. Now, we've seen that expression in Exodus 19, that we are a treasured possession of the Lord. I want to read one more instance of that to you, Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. Because these these expressions occur repeatedly in the Old Testament, not just once, but repeatedly. Look at Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. The Lord says, For you, or Moses, speaking for the Lord, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Again, holy to, set apart for. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people. The Lord set his love on you and chose you. You are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from that hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. A people for his own possession. The Lord treasures his church. The Lord values his church. We as his people individually and collectively are dear to him. He prizes us. He sets great worth on us, which is a staggering thing to think about. And yet it's true. That expression, that beautiful expression that occurs repeatedly in the Old Testament, that we are his treasured possession. You say, wait a minute, he's talking about the Old Testament people. Yes, but he's also talking about us. Because that's exactly what Peter does here. Peter takes these Old Testament phrases, these Old Testament expressions, and says, Christian, these apply to you. That's why he puts them here. He says to his readers, you are these things. Yes, people in the Old Testament were, but you are one with them in your faith in the Lord, faith in Christ, and these things apply now to you, Jew or Gentile. They apply to the one who is in Christ Jesus. You see, that's the people we are. 
We are God's covenant people. We are all of these things that Peter describes here. And it's worth thinking about those, meditating on those things, thinking, how am I seeing this fulfilled in my life? How do I live as, as one of the chosen race? Does that fill me with pride? No. It should humble you. God didn't choose you because you were any better than anybody else, like he says in Deuteronomy 7. In fact, some of us were the worst. But we are his people because he set his love on us and his, his mysterious grace and chose to save us. It doesn't build us up with pride. It, it, it humbles us. It, it, it causes us to be so grateful to the Lord. How are you functioning as a royal priesthood? Do you pray for people you know who are in need? People, one another? Do you pray for people who are unsaved and lift them up with the Lord and pray that God in his grace would go after them? That the Son of Man would seek and save this person who is lost? How are you functioning as a priesthood? How are you living as a holy nation? As a people, are we different from the world? Are we distinct from those around us in our priorities? Life priorities, vocational priorities, financial priorities, and how we live and our ethics and our morals and our integrity. Are we distinct from this world in which we live? Or do we too often just blend in with the world and really seem no different? What does it make you feel? How do you think about being someone who is treasured, who is prized by the Lord? Does that not give you a sense of security, a sense of well-being, even in a world where everything seems crazy, to know that you are of inestimable value to the living God and has purchased you with nothing less than the blood of His Son? These are things worth thinking about. They'll make a difference as they, as they affect our hearts and our minds. Well, that's who we are. But he also talks about the purpose that we have. So here we are in the world. What's our function? What are we to be about? Second part of verse 9. Begins with a, 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 a word that indicates purpose. That or so that you are these things. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Just want to break down those, those three phrases there. Those really come out of Isaiah 43. Again, we won't go back and look at them. But he's, he's still drawing from the Old Testament. We're to proclaim the excellencies of God. The word excellencies is, is a word that has to do with virtue or value or moral excellence, something like that, something that's praiseworthy, something that's uh, virtuous, that's excellent. And that's what we're to be about. He's already hinted at that back in verse 5. We are to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are their spiritual sacrifices? Well, here he puts it another way, to proclaim the excellencies of, of God. And that's what worship is, is it not? It's, it's acknowledging the worth of God, the value of God. And that's true certainly here when we gather, when we actually sing a, a hymn or a psalm that ascribes praise to God. We're acknowledging the value and the worth of God. But that should be true of our lives on Monday through Saturday as well. We are acknowledging in, in, in what we do and what we don't do, what we say, what we don't say, in our priorities, uh, the, the value, the worth, the excellency of God, both in who he is and in what he has done. The function of our priesthood includes declaring the praises of God to God himself, but also declaring the excellencies of God to the world that needs to hear about God so that they can come to him and know him in Christ. Now, what specifically has he done? Well, he says he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Um, 
images that are familiar to you, especially if you are a student of John, John's Gospels, John's letters. You'll remember that this is a favorite. These are favorite categories of John: uh, darkness and light. And the darkness, of course, could be the darkness of not knowing God. Think of First John one verse six. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Darkness can include being excluded from God, not knowing God, living life apart from God. Certainly the darkness of sin, Romans thirteen twelve. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Darkness of not knowing God, stumbling about blindly trying to fill our way. The darkness of sin itself, which this perverse world calls good, what is evil, calls what is evil good, um, calls what is good evil. Well, this category is, is darkness. And our sin is not good. It's evil. Our sin is not light. We're not enlightened. We're, we're living in darkness in our sin. Of course, many, many others. But into his marvelous light. Um, you know, John begins his gospel by talking about the light coming into this world. Uh, we're familiar with John 1. We think in the beginning was the word and the word refers to Jesus, but he also uses that picture of light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, John's not the only one, of course, who uses that image of light for our salvation. Ephesians 5.8, Paul says, for at one time, he doesn't just say you were in the darkness. Listen to what he says. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Be who you are. Uh, The psalmist, Psalm 36, verses 7 through 9, says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. I can't read that without thinking about that pretty well-known quote from C.S. Lewis, uh, where he's talking about the light. Then he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, not only because I see it, but by it I see everything else. Francis Schaeffer used to talk about the Christian life makes sense of what is. It fits with reality. Well, the psalmist says, in your light, Lord, we see light. We don't just see the light of God, but we see everything else in that light. And we we realize that we begin to understand why this world is the way it is, why we are the way we are, and so on. So the purpose we have is to proclaim the excellencies of God as 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 this nation, as this priesthood, as this chosen people, as God's treasured possession, to declare our Lord to the world. But then also he ends just in verse 10 by talking briefly about the privileges that we share. You know, our purpose is upward and outward to worship God and then secondarily to proclaim him to the nations, which, by the way, is a secondary purpose. You know, I I agree with John Piper that missions exist because worship doesn't. You know, missions is for the purpose of bringing about new worshipers of God. But worship is the primary. We proclaim upward primarily and then secondarily proclaim outward so that there will be more people worshiping God and giving him, acknowledging the worth of God and giving him the praise he deserves.
verse. But Peter ends in verse 10 just by talking about the privileges that we share. And here's where we really come back to Hosea 1, passage that we read earlier. He says, once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's an amazing statement. It's easy to let it slip by without thinking about it. But what Peter is saying is this. You, his readers, and you now, those who hear this letter, you who believe in Christ, are the fulfillment of that promise made in Hosea 1. You know, where the Lord says in his judgment on his people, you're not my people. By the way, that, did that strike you as often as we've been looking recently at that statement, that covenant summary, I am, I am your God and you are my people, where God says you are not my people and I am not your God? Does that not send chills down your spine? Where God basically says I, I cancel the covenant, I revoke the covenant, or more properly I fulfill it by bringing these covenant curses down on you that severs the relationship. I'm not your God, you are not my people. But just as quickly as he says that, he goes around and says, the day is coming when there will be those who will be my people, who I will be their God. I will show them mercy. The day is coming. It came in Christ. And it comes for those who believe in Christ. So that what Peter says here, and the reason he says it here, is because we who have believed in him are the fulfillment of that. We saw in Romans, Paul says the very same thing. You know, God making vessels for wrath, God making vessels for mercy, because it was written, you are not my people. Well, now we are the people of God. And Paul quotes those same verses, writing to his present-day readers that they are the fulfillment of that. Peter says the same thing to his readers, and those words come to us today, that you and I are the ones who formerly were not a people. We were dead in our sins. We were under the judgment of God. We didn't belong to anyone but the devil. And now we are God's people, individually and together. Once we had not received mercy, once we were, to use the Bible's image, children of wrath under the judgment of God. But now, in Christ, we have received mercy, the mercy of God, the mercy of God for us in Christ. You see, we are somebody. Peter is very specific about who we are. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. And our purpose is to declare to God himself and to the nations the excellency of the one who called us from darkness into his marvelous light. And you see, our privilege is nothing less than to be the people of God here in this world. Are you among that number? You know for certain that you are. By God's grace, have you seen the sinfulness of your sin? Have you acknowledged its sinfulness to God? Have you turned from it with faith in Christ and by His grace to follow Him and to live in Him, all the while knowing that Christ, through His death and through His obedience, has done everything necessary for you to be saved? If you have done that, then you a part of the people of God. And if that's not being somebody, I don't know what is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you spell out very clearly, very decidedly here, exactly who we are. And Father, it is almost overwhelming to think about the magnificence of our position. 
And yet, Lord, we recognize it's all of grace. There's nothing here that we have that we did not receive from you, nothing in us to deserve any of this. But, Father, you have lavished your mercy on us. This is grace upon grace. Father, we thank you. And we pray that by your power, we would live as your people in this world. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.